Welcome to the Perspectively Sprouting Podcast. This is Chance Gilliam. Together, we're going to explore how to advance the ways we learn and grow. This is achieved through conversations with artists, scientists, innovators, and educators, and is intended to serve curious individuals from any and all walks of life. We're jumping right into this one today. Lisa Channer is a co-founder of Theatre Nobi Most, as well as an associate professor and head of the BA Performance Creation Program at the University of Minnesota. Theatre Nobi Most, which Lisa founded alongside husband and collaborator Vladimir Ravinsky, combines the artistic traditions of Russia and America to create performances in which seemingly disparate ideas, languages, cultures, and ideologies can clash, commingle, and cross-pollinate. They believe theater is at its most engaging when charting unknown territory and therefore seek to build works that conjure new languages and build innovative bridges. Prior to Theater Novimos, Lisa was co-founder and co-artistic director of Sleepless Theater, a political theater company based in Northampton, Massachusetts from 1989 to 1997. During that time, she directed and toured six world premiere plays and co-founded the Sleeveless Theatre School. Lisa has directed and performed all across the globe and has been supported by numerous organizations including the National Endowment for the Arts, ArtsLink International, and the Fund for Women Artists, to name a few. She has an MFA in directing from the Yale School of Drama with additional training at the Dell Art School of Physical Theatre in California and the St. Petersburg Academy of Theatre Arts in Russia. We sat down at the Seward Cafe in Minneapolis and, after grabbing some food and drink, discussed a wide variety of topics such as her parents, lessons learned from loss, and the radical act of kindness. She comments on the value of technology, explains long-form productions, and tells the story of her partnership with Vladimir through the years. Lisa gives some awesome advice about getting your work out there, finding grants, and ways to separate your work from the rest by removing qualifications and simplifying your vision. We touch on mistakes she sees young people making, what first brought her to teaching, and then wrap up with book and show recommendations. It was a blast to meet Lisa. She is brightly generous, and it really does show in her responses, especially a few minutes into the conversation. A woman came to our table selling jewelry, and Lisa perfectly demonstrated the answer to my question of cultivating kindness from day to day. And then she went on to expand the answer from there, but it was in those little moments that I feel I most got to see Lisa. I know you're going to enjoy this. So do me a favor and go show her some love and support after listening. Also, be sure to head to iTunes and subscribe to Perspectively Sprouting. Leave me a rating or review, and I'll keep these conversations coming. Before we start, a relevant quote from Terry Pratchett in A Hat Full of Sky. Why do you go away? So that you can come back. So that you can see the place you came from with new eyes and extra colors. And the people there see you differently too. Coming back to where you started is not the same as never leaving. Coming back to where you started is not the same as never leaving. Please enjoy my conversation with Lisa Channer.
Well, Lisa, thanks for being on the show. You're very welcome. All Thank right. Thank you for having me. I want to start by talking about a post I saw on your Facebook a couple of days ago. It was a journal entry from, I think, four years ago oh, ab- I know about it is. your mother. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Can you share one of your favorite memories of your mom? I'd be happy to talk about my mother for the rest of my life. She <laughs> was an amazing woman. Mm-hmm. Um, that post was from, yeah, four years ago, she died. And I got to be with her when she died in the hospital. And that journal entry was about, it was really written the day she died. I was cuddled up in bed with her and um, my brother was there. And she was very aware that she was dying. Everything was, it was a really beautiful death, actually. And it felt a lot like a birth <clears throat> to me. I felt like a midwife with her, helping her breathe through it and everything because it was lungs that were affected by it and then it ultimately caused her death. So breathing was her big issue. So it was absolutely remarkable. But my mother um, was a woman who, she came to America from England when she was uh, 21, I think. Yeah, 21. And one of 10 children and from a very working class, poor family. Uh, And she came here with an education that stopped at 16 you know you didn't educate girls really past 16 and mm. even though her scores were super high mm. they wouldn't they didn't think of it you know so she didn't do college or anything but it didn't matter she was so incredibly bright and she ended up making a life in America that was uh, amazing she founded the first daycare center in the town where we grew up so that children had a place to be that was safe that was in 1972 I think still going to this day then she founded an arts organization called the arts community so that children would have access to high quality arts learning and she did all this uh, sort of effortlessly she was like um, and then she was her home was always the center of everything she was kind of one of those people that made her community better you, uh, you say her home was the center of everything. Are you talking about family life or... Yeah, well, no, t- uh, like the town? whole community. The whole town? Like, it was a place... We lived in upstate New York. Okay. About an hour out of the city. Okay. In New Paltz, the beautiful Hudson Valley. And uh, it was an extraordinary time and, it, and in that place. It was a lot of free thinkers. It was a lot of... Uh, we were part of the anti-war movement for Vietnam and a lot of artists and people around. So it was... A, and uh, there was a college there, so there was a lot of students with ideas... And my father at the time was a professor, so and he was an unusual professor who was pushing boundaries and talking about consciousness. So my parents were kind of like, you know, in the center of a, of a tumultuous time. I was born in 66, so this is late 60s into the 70s. And the whole country was, you know, we were dealing with the civil rights movement and the peace movement and, and other things like that. It was a very exciting and challenging time Mm. the moon landing happened you know and a lot of it happened in my parents living room you know a lot of the activity was happening so I got that kind of influence from my mother about being engaged in your community and she did it from this really innocent way she was like a Mary Poppins you know (laughs) she was British and (laughs) and incredibly practical but welcomed everyone you know so when she died there was this like world of people all over the world that were tuning in to send love really from all over the globe Hmm. and 
So my journal entries were going out on this site called Caring Bridge, which is for people, families in crisis, you can have like a place where everybody can get information. Mm -hmm. So um, on the anniversary of her death this year, I read through all of the um, Caring Bridge posts that others had made mm -hmm. during the week that my mother was in the hospital and right after she died and stuff my brother and I had written. And that one had stuck out at me as like just exactly telling me what it felt like to be there at that moment. So. Do you journal daily or regularly? Was it something uh, you were doing just at that time? I'll tell you, when I was a kid, I journaled every single day. Mm -hmm. And it's since, it's since my second child was born, it started to taper off. And in the last couple of years, I have almost no interest in it. Hmm. There's nothing less interesting to me than my own thoughts right now. <laughs> Everybody else is much more interesting to me. You know, I, I'm, I have no... It, it's just a phase I'm in. I turned 50, and I... I go to write sometimes. I write down thoughts or process things, but it tends to come out more in my work, I think, this, the work I do with the theater. I, I don't process it as much in writing. Hmm. I used to relentlessly, everything. I have literally three big plastic tubs full of all my old journals because I started at age, um, I think, nine. And was that something that your parents had no. brought you to do? it was Anne Frank. Anne Frank. Yeah. Wow. I read the diary of Anne Frank, and then I was like, oh, that's what I, I'm going to do that. I'm going to write everything down. And then I never stopped. That's amazing. Until that I hit like 45. So I don't know. Years. Yeah. That's a, that's a heck of a phase. Well, what, a, what a book, you know. She, as a child, a young girl reading her, her putting down of her life on paper, it was so moving to me. Hmm. And the Holocaust and Jews in general fascinated me because we grew up with mostly all Jews. I grew up surrounded by Jewish people and Jewish traditions and Jewish culture. Even though we weren't Jewish, we may as well have been. I mean, it was New York. It was Jewish or Italian. <laughs> so I, I latched on to Anne Frank as a hero. So I think that's why I started. I want to connect something you had said about being a midwife to your mother as she was dying mm -hmm. towards the work you do in theater. Yeah. Because theater is very ephemeral. Mm -hmm. Here in one moment, gone in the next. As as Brian Gorenson had put it when I talked to him a, f a few weeks ago. Do you? How do you, how do you view death in life? I, I know that's a broad question, but you can tackle no, that. Do you a have really great any sort of mission in being here? Any vocation that you have developed? The older I get, the more that my answer to that is just kindness. Kindness. I think that kindness is a radical act to walk kindly through the earth, you can know, you, through your time here. Can you give examples of that day to day? Yeah, listening. Oh, no. Not right now, thank you. They're beautiful. I think, um, for me, it's about being present. I mean, this is nothing new. This is what... Buddha was saying, and all the great traditions say, and Jesus was say, you know, um, but actually operate from a place of love, and just assume the best. That is a liberating way to go through life. You assume that everyone is capable of brilliance, and peace, and essential goodness, and treat them that way, and then just this idea that Patsy Rodenberg, the voice teacher, talks about the second circle where you're really present with someone that you're with, or you're present where you are, you're actually hey, there. Barbara. 
that's a very kind way to go through life. And I think America, our culture, you know, it's hard. You, that's again, I say it's a radical act, and I think all artists are doing that. That's why the arts appeal to me. You can't, you can't go through life as an artist, or you can, but it's not as fun, and not be present, and not tell the truth. So I think that is a calling to me. I don't say I live it every day. I, I, I try, but I think as as I get older, that feels really about the. Whole, that's the whole point for me. And has has that changed over the years? Oh yes. How old are you? I'm 20. When I was 20, <laughs> it wouldn't have been kindness. Would not have been the word. It would have been you know making a difference, or it would have been. <laughs> winning or it would have been succeeding you know or it would have been changing the world and these are all things I value it's not that I don't value them it's just I have shifted so I think we all you get tired that's the thing in case you don't know that (laughs) in a few more years you'll start to get tired (laughs) things shift Hmm. and it's really true Hmm. and there's a beautiful blessing in that we live in a I, I feel at I feel, uh, what is the word? I have deep contentment in some ways about who I am now. It's just new. I did not have that. I think I was always uh, wanting to be noticed more or uh, affirmed more or stand out, right? I mean, I think a lot of young people feel that way or at least people in the arts sometimes, but... So for me, that was my, those were drives much stronger for me. And now I kind of feel like I want to give back. I just like giving back. Give back? How so? Well, like, I love now my work with my students. I get to really watch them and be invested in their journey as artists, and I get such a kick out of it. Hmm. There's no part of me, there's no ego anymore in the room for me. I, it's all about helping to pass it on. And, and I, you know, I'm being honest, that was not always the case. I, I don't think I was able to let go of my own agenda or my own ego until very recently. Wow. And I still don't think I have completely, and I, it's a goal. So that's, in terms of death, I do think it's a birth. I think it's light. I think you birth into a new form. I don't know what it is. I have no idea where we go, but it's energy. It's all energy. My mother used to say she thought that when you die, you become pure intelligence. Hmm. And you get to just join this sort of collective intelligence that has no need for bodies or limits beautiful it's a beautiful idea yeah and I think that's probably how I feel do you feel like you reached the acceptance that you now feel through any particular process was it meditative was it a series of events how do you think you arrived at where you are well first of all I, I would never say I've arrived I think I'm arriving as we all are so I wouldn't ever want to claim I have figured it out that's a, that's but a good yeah yeah just to be clear there's no uh, no sense of being done um, I would you know truthfully loss not just my mother but other kinds of loss really coming up hard against limits it's it's humbling and it's um, knocks you back a bit and I think that that was good for me it shifted me so I would say yeah also truly like I had two kids which is a joy and also like the most exhausting thing you'll ever do and the hardest job you'll ever have and it's unbearable sometimes right so you're you're pushed up against limits just by being a parent hmm. that 
So I've been a parent for 16 years. My oldest is 16, and I think that has humbled me as well. Hmm. It just it, you don't you can't you can't fight everything anymore. <laughs> you know, you can't fight to hold on to a feeling too long, or you can't fight to change things from what they are. You literally are humbled by hitting limits. For me, I was humbled by hitting limits, and I think the death of my mother and some other losses that came along have helped me with that. I think. For younger people, yeah. What what advice might you have to to build that sort of characteristic sooner? I, I think that oh, oftentimes you guys are way ahead of me. Most of you. How so? My students constantly blow me away, and they're just a little. They're your age, you know. They're just out of some of them, right out of high school and college. And I think kids today. Are because of the incredible technological leaps we've had, so that things like the internet and texting. I'm, I know this sounds silly, but not at all. The the connectivity of something like YouTube or Facebook or Twitter or all these ways that you guys can instantly share a thought hmm. with each other hmm. and grow as a collective. Hmm. I think it's incredible. Hmm. It was everything was slower before. Now, some people would say that's not good, but I actually see a lot of value in this. Definitely. I think it builds collectivity, and I'm a, basically a socialist. I think collectivity is good. We want to build that. So when you have this technology hey, that Hannah, allows Hannah. for you to find a, a, a tool or an inspiration or a, a person that you care about, and you can just tweet it out to all your friends or put it out there, and it's an option. Or you're interested in something, you can just go on the internet and find it and dig in. Definitely. It's incredible. And and I absolutely agree with you that connectivity is the direction that we're heading and that it is in I hope. In yeah, an unbelievably fantastic tool. However, I also and and this may be because we're still in the very early and incipient yeah. stages of connectivity, but it seems like people can also become very secluded, even yes. amidst all of the information that we have today. Mm -hmm. And I know with Theater Novi Most, mm -hmm. you value challenging ideas and ideologies. Mm -hmm. How, uh, can can you speak on? You know, breaking outside of your comfort zone and, and challenging your own ideas in a productive sort of way. Wow. Well, let's see. That's a lot. I think, I don't know if my work is necessarily about challenging my own ideas. I think they're about digging in, digging. maybe a little, like going deep. So, but actually, I guess that is challenging. So, I guess that's true. We take a really long time to make work. And it usually goes through a lot of phases, so I, I tend to do what I call slow art. Slow art. Yeah, yeah I, I read it takes one to three years on average it for It does, a production. and sometimes much longer. So we have a new piece that's going to, new, I say new, and it's been in development really since 2011, hmm. and it's going to premiere in the fall in 2017. Hmm. And now it hasn't been, we haven't been in the rehearsal with it every day all those time at all. It's had pockets of development. But it's been churning and kind of cooking. I, I think about uh, my artistic life as a stove, a burner. You know, it's got about <laughs> six burners. <laughs> and so the pot that's on the front right is the one that's the most <laughs> in front. <laughs> and sometimes the pots are only there for a couple months. It's really quick. Like I'm sure. directing a show right now. That's, it's a four-week process. It's going to be very quick. Hmm. And I'm loving it. It's great. But meanwhile, I'm simmering 
you know, these other shows. Yeah. <laughs> this is just how I think. Yeah. And I have to stir those pots every once in a while. Okay. You know, and then maybe a grant comes through so that pot gets moved way up front. Hmm. So there's usually six projects brewing, you know? And yeah. so I like that. I think it's fun. And I, I get to, um, I mean, I feel super fortunate because the, the way my life is set up now, I really can choose what I do. Hmm. Had I gone the direction of uh, a freelance director, it would have been harder to make that life. I know it's possible, but it's harder because you're at the mercy of what other people are interested in. And they ask you to come and direct a play. And I didn't want to do that, really. I wanted to make my own stuff and use it as a way to sort of think about the world larger, more largely than a play, maybe. That said, I do work with playwrights a lot, almost always. So for me, the written word is really important. And I love plays, you know, so... But the, the, when you're developing new work, you really need longer. You need just do time. You need time for it to all have a lot of mistakes. And We were talking about this today with some students because the graduate students at the U reached out to the engineering students to develop a new kind of mechanized wing for a show they're doing right now at the U so that the wing could like open up so they went to these students that work on like airplane design you know grad students and wing design for airplanes so automation and they 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 had them design the the casing for the wing mechanically and they were saying how for those students uh, in that world it takes a long their research has tons of time to develop it goes through many phases and they don't even necessarily see the end of it you know Mm. and ours was like a few months Mm. so their experience working with it was exhilarating because Mm. they got to actually see the result quickly and now those students are going to come and see the show and see their wing their their mechanism in action you know it's just a totally and I think sometimes we're too fat we expect art to go too quickly (laughs) I would like it to be more time to make mistakes like we give to science, hmm. you know, research and science. Trials and experiments. Yeah, and pure research where you don't know where it's going to lead. Like, you need time to just be in a room with a bunch of crap and see what it does. Hmm. And if you have that time, that's free time. And then out of that experiment comes something that you might follow up. But we have an understanding, certainly how we fund art and how we think about it, that it's all about getting a product it's capitalist, really. Definitely. It's an assembly line model. Oftentimes. And it's efficient. And it's not like that in Europe as much. It's longer, slower processes in Europe. But the, the goal in America is about usually the bottom line is money. And we're lucky because our bottom line isn't money. We're not interested in making money. So we can actually, the, the goal and the bottom line is something different. How do you build a relationship with an audience when you're working over such a great time frame rather than I don't know. constantly <laughs> I don't barraging know. them with I don't know if we have it might change all the time like there are people who have followed our work consistently but then there are also people who have only moved here in the last three years so they only know our work that we've done in the last three years which means they know two shows <laughs> and they know Rehearsing Failure and they know The Seagull and if they were here from 2010 on, they might know the show we did about the Gilgamesh epic or the piece about the picnic on the battlefield, but it's spread out, so it's, it is complicated. <laughs> I don't think we're very good at that, actually. <laughs> the only thing that keeps us maybe in people's minds a little bit, I hope, is that we do little, like we develop the pieces by showing lots of bits of them. So even Interesting. though, yeah, so we might have like the premiere of a finished new work 
And then a few months after that, a reading of something that we've been developing for a while, and people can come and check it out. So, but I, truthfully, I think I'm a terrible. I'm not good at like audience keeping them engaged or communicated with. I feel like I often am shitty at that. So. <laughs> if there's anybody listening that would like to be our audience development person, that's probably. <laughs> All right. be great. There's, a, there's a call to action there for all the listeners. We've got a job opening. <laughs> we do. Um, well, speaking of um, partnerships, I know you work with Vladimir. What's his last name? Rovinsky. Rovinsky. Mm-hmm. Vladimir Rovinsky. Yes. How did you two meet, and why do you think the partnership has continued on as long as it has? You're going on. 16. 16 years? Wow. Roughly. Well, we have a long history that started when, I think it was the fall of 1997. Seven? 97. 97. Yeah. I was a graduate student at Yale School of Drama and Directing. Sorry. That airplane had something to say. Bye, airplane. Have a good flight. Safe travels. <laughs> I hope you're going somewhere warm and good. Um, <clears throat> so I was a graduate student uh, in my first year of a three-year um, MFA in directing, mm-hmm. and I was assigned to a project called the the Meyerhold Project. And this is at Yale, correct? This is Yale School of Drama in New Haven, Connecticut, and that project was um, a recreation of a very famous production from 1926. That was directed uh, a play by by um, Jesus. Who was it? I'm trying to remember the original. Doesn't matter. Gogol. Thank you. Uh, called the Inspector General, a famous Russian play, comedy. And in 1926, a director named Vasilid Vasilid Meyerhold had staged it in a really exceptionally complicated and daring way. Hmm. And because the Soviet Union was starting to turn uh, toward uh, Stalin, um, things were getting dicey there. And he was ban- He was um, a non-person on grata. He was eventually killed and murdered in prison. So he was imprisoned for his work in the theater. His wife was killed, stabbed, I think, 15 times. And he was taken God. to prison, tortured, and then executed in 1941. So he... In some ways, his legacy, he was a master. And for directors in the theater, he's kind of like a holy grail. We all want to understand him. He was quite exceptional. The way he thought about what theater was, he was like a Picasso for theater, like seeing things that people couldn't quite see yet. So anyway, after the fall of the Soviet Union, when the wall came down and everything in the 90s, all these documents were found about that production in 26. Hmm. So it was very exciting. So our school, the Yale, Yale School of Drama, had a relationship with the State Academy of Theater Arts in St. Petersburg, Russia, and we were recreating a staging of that 26 production. And you had also attended St. Petersburg, right? At some I point? did. That Because of that project, we got to go over there and attend training in biomechanics, which wow. was the, the method that Meyerhold had used. So it was basically a, a combination putting together directors and actors from Yale and directors in St. Petersburg in their MFA program. And Mm -hmm. Vladimir was one of them. So he and I were two directing MFAs, one from Russia, one from the U.S., and we met on that project. The first time we met, the Russians came to New Haven. And then the next, we went, then we all went to Russia the next time. And then the show itself was wonderful. It performed in Amsterdam, and so we got to be in Amsterdam for a little while. And that was a three-year, two- or three-year process of back-and-forth 
making that show with a very large team of different languages and and I was an assistant director on that and then I ended up acting in part of it as well when we went to Amsterdam so that's how we met hmm. and in and in 98 we staged a production together at Yale um, a really wonderful little piece called Delirium for Two and in 2000 we were married and had um, started had Sasha our son and lived in New in um, Massachusetts for a little while and then moved down to Alabama for five years which is really a strange little detour but we had a really good time but it was weird I'm tempted to ask how you made that jump to Alabama well the jump Not was for interrupt. a job no that's okay it was for a job I got offered a position at a university and we were living like we had no money and um, he had no green card yet hmm. he had just was just getting his green card so we were like you know Let's go where there's a job for a little while. And I kind of thought it might be an interesting odyssey, too. Hmm. So I had never been south except to Nashville on tour once. You know, so I was like, let's go. Let's just see what happens. <laughs> and we were down there for a total of five years. And then this job here opened up, and we wanted to reignite the, the idea of a company. And so this was a logical choice to come here. I had known Minneapolis from my first theater company that I had in the 80s and um, loved it. We would tour through here and it was like one of our favorite cities and it was great. So I knew it was on my radar and then this job opened up and I was like, let's do it. They offered me a job and I was like, so that was what made us, yeah. So the company was on hiatus quite a bit, on and off. We haven't been consistently producing. It's, it's, we don't have time to consistently do anything. But yeah, so that's the story of that. And the, the, the artistic relationship kind of goes in and out. Right now, we're doing much more work that's separate from each other. He just directed The Seagull by Chekhov, which was really beautiful. Awesome show. It wasn't it beautiful? Yeah, he did a great job. And he, because he's Russian, he understands it in a way that's so lovely. So, hmm. And he's going to direct an Ibsen coming up in April for us, the uh, master builder. So, okay. Yeah, so, you know, he's really excited by European classics and re-engaging them and kind of blowing them apart a little. And I'm working on making like stuff that's just completely different. I have a piece I'm making that's just um, a performance or a piece about my dad. Really? Yeah, that's totally bizarre. And it's non-linear and strange. And so. Do you know when? Do you know when that's going to be? Uh, well, I just got word that I got a grant for it. I'm really honored. The Arts Council just gave me an arts initiative grant to okay. do it to finish it. Okay. It's been developed again over three years. So it started and it was commissioned and then it got developed more and we took it to California this past summer to a festival. It's me and a wonderful director named Samantha Johns and my composer partner Dan Dukic and uh, a media designer named Eric Larson. All super talented and helpful people. And my son is in it, my younger son is in it with me, and I perform it. Wow. And it's got a lot of multimedia. It's about, my father's a very strange and interesting human being, and it's kind of about him, and sort of about utopia. Utopia? Yeah. What's utopia And about Buckminster like? Fuller. I have no idea what it looks like. Utopia means no place. It doesn't exist, probably. <laughs> my father, I think, is a utopianist. He, was, he spent a lot of his life trying to make something happen trying to usher in perfection of some sort in the world. He's, he's a very fascinating man. He has a TV talk show in New York on, ca- on cable access TV in Manhattan. And he does what you're doing, really. His whole life for 40 years has been 
interviewing people that he's interested in. That's just, that's all he does. And he refuses to do it for money. It's on cable access. Wow. Because he wants it free. He doesn't believe in money. And he, he's still working <laughs> on he's still working on the same project? Oh, my God, yes. 40 years. He's interviewed... He has 3,000 interviews. That I, wow, I would love to talk to him oh, if you he's can interested. Google, oh, yeah. are you kidding? He, <laughs> you might not want to, but he would be happy to talk to you. Oh, I would love to. About all kinds of deep ideas and all his theories. You know, he's fascinating. Very smart man. Is he going to get a chance to see the show? Well, it's a complicated question. I haven't told him about it yet. <laughs> and it's something I'm figuring out. Okay. I think it depends where it's done. If I if we do it in New York, I would definitely tell him so he can be prepared because he would he might hear about it and he could come and see it. He's st- he's 82. It's it's a it's a piece that's really intimately about him and me and He's insane in some ways, so it's about that too. And I don't know, I don't want to hurt him. Hmm. I'm trying to make a piece that I could be proud to show him because hmm. I don't want it to be cruel. But some of it is very funny and I I don't know. I don't know. Not sure. How do you how do you navigate that territory as an artist? Because you're obviously drawing from your own life yeah. experiences, but you don't want to alienate anyone that you're and close to. And you don't want to, to offend anyone no. or speak for someone. It's so hard. The first version of it we did like ten minutes a few years back for a, the Skewed Visions high, uh, commissioned it. A little bit of work on it. And that one, it was a great ten minutes, but I later on felt like it was a little bit making jokes at my dad's expense hmm. and I made a conscious effort when we went back in to work on it again to try not to do that anymore hmm. so because dad is it's easy to make fun of him you know it really is <laughs> he's like he's a dreamer and he's eccentric and he's really a pain well, in the Caleb ass and, Mac. and he's also just wonderful and very smart so anyway it's easy to make fun of him and I didn't want to do that anymore so now this the new piece is a little bit less about that and more giving his brilliant ideas some credence and putting them front and center and then my relationship to him is at the center okay so it's from my point of view okay yeah it's fun (laughs) and to backtrack just slightly I know you said you were able to finish this piece because of a grant you received I will be able to will be able to in reading over your biography before coming here I saw that you've been a recipient of a number of grants I'm just wondering how exactly you separate yourself and your work from you know the myriad other artists and performers that are applying for the same sorts of grants and wow. and maybe advice to people pursuing the, yeah. the same opportunities that's a really uh, an incredibly important question and I know that a lot of people don't think about it until they're faced with it like we need more training in that because it is hard eloquently being able to describe what you do and succinctly describe it is hard hmm. And it's something I've had to learn to do because that's just how the arts work in America. You've got to get grants. Um, so I don't know. It's, I'm, I've gotten better at it. I feel like now I can read other people's grants and help because I understand what sounds like padding and what sounds... You know what? Oh, I know one hint. This is a good one that someone has been helping me remember lately. To not qualify your work with things like, I hope to, or I... If all goes well, I will. Or I managed to. Just say what you're going to do. I will write a new play about XYZ. Plain and simple. Yes. And I know that that's... Because when you qualify, or, or toot your own horn, you know, when you need to talk about what you've already done, rather than use language that's kind of qualifying or 
Um, I mean, this is studies show that women do this more than men, but I still think young people do it a lot, where they kind of don't want to sound like they're being arrogant or like they're great. But the truth is, you have to believe in what you're asking money to do. You have to believe you're good enough that you deserve this money. Not good enough, but that the work is of value. So teaching yourself how to go through and get rid of all of those kind of apology, like, I'd be so grateful if, or, you know, just say what you're going to do, be proud of it. Is that just a matter of, you know, mentally pointing it out when you do slip up and say that? I don't know. I think it's about writing everything exactly how you want and then go back in and be like, oh, that sounds like I'm qualifying or have someone else read it. Hmm. Biggest advice I would give is make sure other people who have done that before read your grant. Do not submit (laughs) anything without having other people read it. I do. I have other people read my grants still. It's a good practice. It really is. And especially people that have served on a grant panel because they know what goes on in the rooms, you know, and what, and it's, and sadly, each grant is aimed at a different, um, you know, some grants are aimed at like emerging art, some are, and you have to tweak your, tweak your proposals to what you think the grant is trying to Hmm. find. (laughs) Oh, I don't know. It's a, it's a, it's sometimes I really enjoy it. It can be a great way to force you to name what you want to do. And that's good for the artist, right? You want to be able to clarify your goals. And a grant is a great way to force you to do that. Hmm. Even if you don't get it. Oh, the other advice. Apply for a lot because even if you don't get a grant, there's value in having submitted it. Because that panel of people are usually important people and they've all read your proposal. Yeah. They know you now. And you're on their radar. Yeah. And they are going to say your name to someone else, or they are going to notice you next time. I'm telling you, it's a, it's a real phenomenon. Just to get it out there. Get your work out there. You know, if you feel good about it, and you feel like you're, and even if you don't get the grant, it's very, it's not, it's it's almost never about your work's not good. It's usually some stupid thing. <laughs> <laughs> not that you did, but that the grant has a really like narrow parameter, or they have. You know, there's someone on the panel that didn't get it, or who knows? There's lots of reasons. That seems like that applies to much of life. We're yes, always it offended does. by, you know, what people Not say. Personal. It's never personal. It's always about them and what's going on in their own head. Yeah, and I mean, what I'm not talking about right now is ways in which I think the whole grant world is really screwed up and not doing really the best for our artists. I know people who are incredibly, incredibly talented and consistently do not get grants because they don't fit into neat boxes. (laughs) And so I have gotten good at taking my work that is not necessarily in neat boxes and knowing how to write it as if it is (laughs) because that helps me get money. But people that are honest and really describe the work they're doing that might be more esoteric or more cross-disciplinary or just strange, people are afraid of funding that often, and it's a real problem. And that's what I mean about pure research. We need grants saying, you're a talented person. I want to give you money for a year to do whatever you want to do. I want to give you money for just pure research. Hmm. You don't have to tell me your end goal. You don't have to, you know, those are the grants we need. For for exploration. Yeah. I love it. Uh, to, To support the artist in their life so they can do whatever they need to do. Anyway, that's not what that's not how it is now, though. So <laughs> <laughs> there's like the realistic part and there's the dreaming part. Yeah, you know? yeah. 
well, we need dreamers, you know. Those, that's oh, that's yeah. how that's how things advance. Is you yeah. imagine well, what what could improve? Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Um, in terms of building confidence, especially among young people, yeah. um, because you're a teacher and a mother, how else do you see young people undercut themselves? We talked about qualifying. What other mistakes? do you see being made on a frequent basis? Well, fear of making mistakes. Fear of making mistakes. <laughs> Probably the biggest mistake. <laughs> Number one. My students, uh, the young people I know who are the most, who for whom confidence is working the, the most generously are the ones that are willing to risk and look silly and make a failure. Hmm. I think, and then stand up and go, well, that was fun. And Take what's next? Yeah. <laughs> The ones that are very careful to do it right tend to feel more insecure. Because once you've fallen flat on your face in front of people and you're still living and fine, and they've all said, we still love you and you're great, you got all the confidence in the world because you know that there is nothing you can do that isn't useful. Hmm. But to not try, you know, to not stretch your idea because you're afraid it might look weird or sound weird is, um, you know, and I know, you know, especially I get the honor of watching these young people go from really leaving the teenage years, like they have one foot in the teen years and one foot in adulthood. And by the time they graduate, they are closer to adulthood. And those are poignant years because you're leaving behind a lot of self-consciousness that comes from teenage shared living. I think teenagers overall, not all, because, you know, I think everybody's different. Yeah. But they come in more about wanting to do it right and being very worried about failing and kind of a little more self-conscious. And they tend, and maybe also thinking that they know a lot, right? So surety (laughs) about what you do know and what you don't know. And then I think by the time you graduate, if you're lucky, you're now a person who knows that we all know nothing and we're all learning and you're curious and you're less concerned what others think of you and more concerned of what's out there. You know, so I think there's that. That's a developmental just shift from inward to outward. I think that happens, and that build that brings with it a confidence. What first attracted you to teaching in formal education? That's a great question. Uh, you know, I was a teacher. I started teaching at 16. I was a dancer. Wow. And I was offered some teaching positions and choreography work, and I loved it. Was this within your own studio? Oh, no, no. It was um, in in New York where I was living. I I was a dancer, and the, the people that were my teachers were hiring me to teach now. And I really loved it, and I found a calling for it a little. And then I was an actor, and then I started the company and realized I wanted to direct the first company, Sleeveless Theater. So I I think through the directing came to teaching and then with Sleeveless Theater we kind of founded our own school. We were doing a lot of kind of political comedy improvisation work and and building up of kind of a new kind of vaudeville. And that was early 90s? Yeah, it was 89 and we ended in 96, 97. What a time for political comedy. Oh yeah. Wow. It was the backlash years. (laughs) We were traveling when Bill Clinton was elected. We were touring. Yeah, it was great. We we know Hillary Clinton from way back when. Yeah, yeah. too bad you're not still going today. Well, you know that we were not needed. Hmm. We were a women. We were all women. Very funny. Very smart group. I was with such smart people, and we were so lucky. Hmm. And we just hit the nail on the head at that moment of what we were doing. We were like we were called uh, Monty Python meets National Public Radio. We were very <laughs> absurd 
and also um, very informed and, and sort of it was intellectual as well. So awesome. it was a neat mix. We did a piece about the feminist movement. We did a piece about abortion, a comedy about abortion. I mean, who does that? But we did. And we did a piece about, I mean, it was about the, the pro-life movement and sort of how absurd it was getting and the history of abortion and birth control. A piece about the first Gulf War, hmm. called War, the miniseries. Hmm. You know, and then we did a piece about mill workers and the start of the Industrial Revolution in America. But anyway, because of how we were developing our shows, and they were popular, they were very popular, <laughs> we were able to say, hey, let's teach this. Yeah. You know, and we got good at it. And so... Uh, I was teaching with that, and then. And to, um, and to yeah. clarify quickly, yeah. was that a matter of workshops, um, or did you have a central location that people we had attended? A central, we had a couple of different ways we did it. Okay. That's a great question. We were yeah, because we weren't much older than you know you. I mean, we were in our twenties when we mm. did all this. This was not you know we weren't all like settled, and none of us had kids or yet you know, so we were free. We we rented space in community centers and places like that at first. And would um, offer classes like four nights a week. So like one night would be in introduction to in improv comedy. Number two would be like political sketch writing. Third night might be um, mask. One of our one of our members had gone to the Del Arte School of Physical Theater, and she came back with all the skills. Mm. And then one might be character building, character development, right? Or whatever. It was a range. We sometimes taught kids. We had camps, and then eventually we got a space. We got a studio in an old uh, brush factory. It was like a you know, like around here, how all these great art centers come up out of, like, mm -hmm. old industrial buildings. Same idea. It really works. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah we were so... Lo we loved it. Huh. So then we did that, and, you know, we weren't charging a lot. We were keeping it so people could afford it, but the classes were really popular. And we were starting to get people in the classes who were both, like, kind of professional people that wanted to really do it as business like make their life in the arts and then like judge a judge would come you know we had people that were just civ civic community people that wanted to come and learn how to be a little looser yeah, yeah and think yeah. about stuff so it was that's fun some, that's some serious audience fun. engagement yeah, yeah yeah it was it was really fun and yeah. then and then we would tour our shows too so so you're a professor now at the University of Minnesota but it sounds sure like you're am. saying the initial introduction to teaching wasn't planned in that sort of way you not know? at all well then how did you how did you transition from sleeveless to the next position right well after sleeveless I went to Yale because I realized I wanted to direct and I had a big gap in my knowledge I had been devising our own work for a decade um, and I had a history as an actor and a dancer but I hadn't done much studying I had never directed a Shakespeare or a classic text or like a play play and I realized I wanted to understand how that whole world worked and I uh, was accepted to this program, which is a really classical, good program, and was lucky enough to get that hole, like, exactly filled, you know, yeah. exactly what I got to do there. And met great people who I'm still just so honored to be in touch with and, mm -hmm. and dear, dear friends and collaborators, you know. I mean, just such talented people. Um, and had great teachers, you know. I got to study with some amazing masters. Um, so that was a great three years, totally outside of what I had been doing. You know, it was a new, I did. I directed Shakespeare, I directed Moliere, I directed new plays, I directed, you know, it was great. And then after that, I was living in back in Massachusetts and I had a new baby. I was pregnant in my last year at Yale. And Vladimir and I were living in uh, Massachusetts and we didn't have any money. And one day I said, I did our budget and I said, all right, 
we need ten thousand more dollars this year. If we, because we knew we had some gigs. Like he was teaching at a performing arts school, and I was, I don't know. We had some money, but not okay. a lot. Right. We were really, really struggling, and we none of us have money in our families. There's no. I grew up with no money. No one has money, so we knew we had to like figure it out. And I said to Velodia, we need ten thousand more dollars this year. So if we can figure out how to get that, we'll be okay. And I'm not kidding. This is for real. The next day, <laughs> the telephone rang. Ding, 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 ding. Yep. And it was, I graduated from undergraduate at the University of Massachusetts. And Carly Erdman, who I'm going to see tomorrow night because he's in town, I just found out. Hey. That's a shout out. Um, he called me. He was the chair of the theater department. And he said, Lisa, this is Harley. I know you had a baby like three months ago and you're probably not interested, but I'm looking for someone to teach a couple classes as an adjunct starting in January. This was like November, December. And I said, oh, I'm sh- totally interested. He said, it's two classes. He told me what they were. And he goes, I wish it was more, but it's just, it's $10,000. And I was like, perfect. Amazing. So I do believe that if, you give, vo- if you give voice to what you need, sometimes it comes to you. So literally it was the day after I'd said that sentence, I got $10,000. So that's how I started teaching. And then I found out that I loved teaching at the university level. Why? Well, the kids are choosing to be there. You know, they are, and I say kids because to me they're still very young, um, in a good way, you know. I, and I wasn't much older than them at that point. I was only in my early 30s, so some of these students were really less than a decade younger than me. Mm-hmm. But I found it really exciting to have, to, to, to have the resources of a university, to have the community of the other faculty. And then the students are so eager. They're so excited to just get in there and try to do it. It's sort of like a company of its own. It is that a community. Co- that is such a great way to put it. Yes, that is exactly how I feel now. And now that I'm running a BA, I feel like... It is a company. Hmm. And each each project we do, it's like, this is the company for this project, you know? Hmm. So, yeah, and I found I had an affinity for it. I, I was a, I'm a really good, really good teacher, and I like teaching. And it is not hard for me or stressful, so I could do it without it being, like, anxiety-provoking. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's like a paycheck, so yeah. honestly. <laughs> it's like a paycheck in health insurance. So, yeah. yeah, sign me up. Yes, please. It was like a great day job. That's what I have, is a great day job. Hmm. And uh, and one that enables you to do do even more work within the same general sphere of theater, but yeah. do do more work on your own terms. Exactly. Yeah. And also, you know, several of the students that have come through the program here. I've been here nine years, and some of my regular collaborators are my former students. Hmm. Not all of them. There's some of them are not, but I mean, I can think of at least five regulars that hmm. I work with who I've known since they were 18, hmm. you know, and we worked together when they were students, and then they went and did some other stuff, and then we got together and started really being collaborators hmm. on absolutely equal footing. And in fact, they are teaching me and challenging me. So it's not like the students come through and then you never see them again. It's actually, it keeps growing, you know. It's like you're adding to this wonderful... Because we're lucky Minneapolis students stay around. Yeah. You know, because it's a great city. Because it's an awesome city. It's amazing. Why would you leave, right? I think sometimes people leave, and they should, to go see the world like you did. You know, go to Europe and see what else is out there. Yeah. But then, luckily, a lot of them do come back. Yeah, I, um... I'll have to share this in either the introduction or the outro to the episode, but there's a great quote that I just read earlier today, um, and, I, and I'm paraphrasing here, but it was something about how coming back 
and never having left are not the same thing. And I think that's very Absolutely. astute. Absolutely. I think that's very astute. Absolutely. Yeah. I completely agree. And my times, I, I always say, get out of the country. Hmm. Get out, get a passport, and go see somewhere else because you understand your country so much more fully. Is it difficult seeing the fraught political tension between the United States and Russia having such a, <laughs> yes, a personal connection? Yeah, it's sad. Hmm. It's really awful. When we first met, it was a time of like beautiful collaboration and excitement, and Russia was welcoming us, and every there was a sense of like new hope. The communist era was over, and and now it's really, really dark. A lot of suspicion. Putin is a really a dangerous, dangerous man. Hmm. And uh, it's sad. Velodya is very saddened by it, especially because hmm. it's his family and friends are there. But uh, no, it's taken a very ugly turn, hmm. I think. And so our relations, have, of course, suffered because... Hey, Joella, God. We hopefully don't want to be friends with a totalitarian regime, and God willing, we don't become one. I want to be respectful of your time, and I know we're okay. we're coming up on the end of it. But a couple rapid-fire questions. Sure. What books have you gifted most frequently? <gasps> I love that question. It's a great question. In uh, Operating Instructions by Anne Lamott. Okay. Every time someone has a baby, that's what I give them. Operating Instructions, Anne, Anne Lamott. Lamott. You do not need to have had a baby to love this book. It's phenomenal. But if you have a baby, you need to read it. It's about what a total fucking mess it is when you have a baby. And it's great. It's just about being a person. It's hmm. beautiful. Um, I have started to give this book called The Argonauts by Maggie Nelson, who is now my new favorite writer. And those Argonauts? Yep, The Argonauts. Like, you know, Jason and the Argonauts. Okay. It's just called The Argonauts okay. by Maggie Nelson, who's a brilliant writer. And also, I've started to give this book called I Love Dick which is by Chris Krause. Chris Krause. Yeah. And it just got made into a television series on Amazon. Okay. Um, which is great. And it's gotten picked up and it's actually going to run and it's really good. But it's also a great book. Those are things I've gifted a lot. And Good Night Moon. Classic. Classic. <laughs> I give it to a lot of people. I yeah. love that book. Oh, yeah. And Frederick the Mouse. Okay. Who um, is about the little, the little mouse who doesn't seem to do anything useful, but actually he's an artist. <laughs> So anyway, I awesome. love that book too. Awesome. Yeah. Any uh, TV shows or documentaries you'd recommend? Oh yeah. Anything you're liking? I love TV completely. Yeah. I think TV is at an amazing time right now. Hmm. I love it. It's a great medium. Oh my God, I'm so happy by TV right now. Uh, I think, um, well, this new series, I Love Dick, is going to be really good. Watch it. My friend Catherine Hahn's in it too, so I'm plugging for her. But it really cool. is a great oh, cool. show. It really is going to be great. I think um, Transparent was really interesting, and Jill Soloway, as a director, excites me very much. In fact, she's the director of the I Love Dick series as well. So if you like Transparent, it's that same world in a way. Um, I think The West Wing was a brilliant piece of television. It lasted for seven years, I think. Wow. And it was if you haven't watched it, you'll learn a lot about America and about how the government works. It's a good time to be watching it, actually. Yeah, I really yeah, do yeah. recommend it. Cool. Um, no, there's so much good TV. I mean, take your pick. And uh, and finally, if anyone wants to connect with you, add, add yeah. some questions that I get, didn't quite get to here or anything like that, any uh, good place they can connect with you on social I'm media? I'm totally happy for them to go to the Theater Novimost website, and they can just email me at lisa at theaternovimost.org. Okay. And anybody can write to me. Theater's with an R-E. Okay. And Novimost is N-O-V-I. 
M-O-S-T. And I can link to that in the show notes Yeah, it as means well. um, it means theater of a new bridge. That's new what Novi Most means. No, new, new bridge, bridge in Russian. Yeah. Lisa Channer, building bridges. <laughs> Thanks for being on the show. Oh, it was good to meet you. Thank yeah. you for having we'll me. We'll have to do it again. Okay. Episode three. That's a wrap. This one was loaded with bits of information. I'd encourage all listeners to reflect on any takeaways they might have had and start to integrate them into your daily life. Of course, feel free to email Lisa at the address she provided. If you've enjoyed this podcast or made use from it, there are a number of ways you can support it. First and foremost, by sharing it with someone you know, a friend, an acquaintance, a family member, or anyone else that comes to mind. Subscribe to us on iTunes and leave a review or rating. You can also support the podcast directly by going to patreon.com forward slash chance by chance and leaving a one-time or per episode donation. Every bit helps. Until next time, thank you for listening.